Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Our speaker this evening was ordained in 1996 when he finished his Master of Arts degree at the Angelicum in Rome. He has served as parochial vicar at several parishes in the Diocese of Arlington and as pastor of St. John the Beloved in McLean. He currently serves as Episcopal Vicar for Clergy, Director of the Permanent Diaconate Program, and the Pastor of St. James. He's author of That Nothing May Be Lost, Reflections on Catholic Doctrine and Devotion, and Editor of Sermons in Times of Crisis, 12 Homilies to Stir Your Soul. Father Scalia is a member of the Institute's Board of Advisors and has given numerous and extremely popular lectures for the ICC. And we are so pleased to welcome back this wonderful priest, Father Paul Scalia. Father, welcome. Good to have you with us, Father. Always a blessing. Great. Shall we begin with a prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God and Father, on this feast of the North American martyrs, we ask you to stir up in us that same zeal for souls and that same charity that animated them, that we may, like them, give you glory by proclaiming your truth and seeking new members of your kingdom. We pray this invoking the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, her most chaste spouse, and we pray, as always, in the name of Jesus, the Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father, and welcome. Thank you. Good to be back with y'all. So, uh, I want to begin where we should always begin and end, which is, of course, with our Lord. And so as we look at tonight's topic on uh, the human passions, the passions of the soul, uh, it's important to um, go first to our Lord and what he taught about this and uh, and how he exemplified it. So, and, and this is just kind of a survey, just a, a little smattering of examples. So first of all, Blessed are those who mourn. And so our, our Lord our, is teaching us something already uh, about that particular passion uh, or emotion, that there's something blessed about that. And then uh, Luke chapter 10, which is kind of full of examples here, the 70 return after, a, a, after their mission, and, um, and they're really enthusiastic. And our Lord says to them, Behold, I've given you authority to tread over, to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. That's pretty good stuff, right? But then he says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so there's a little instruction on proper joy, on what should really bring us joy. And then right after that, we hear, he, he sort of gives us an example Right. So he teaches by word and then he teaches by example. In that same hour, Luke tells us, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And so, th so there is, he's giving us an example of, of authentic human joy. And then Luke 12, we just had this reading the other day at Mass. It's, it's one of my favorites because uh, it, it, it must uh, shock people so much. You know, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. <laughs> it's very, it's, and, I, and the other, the translation at mass is I'll tell you who to fear. It's kind of like a threat. You know, it, it, it sounds really funny to us. But again, there's our Lord 
instructing us on, on this emotion of fear, which is a legitimate, genuine emotion uh, that, that we ought to have and experience. Uh, again, in the Gospel of Saint, uh, the Gospel of Saint Luke, when uh, our Lord comes to Jerusalem, what happens? He weeps over Jerusalem. There is that sorrow that our Lord exemplifies. He weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps at the grave of uh, at the tomb of Lazarus, right? And we hear so many times that his heart is moved with pity uh, at, at, when he sees the uh, the widow of Nain, right? They're, they're, they're taking her son out in the, the funeral procession. He sees her, which is significant, and his heart is moved with pity. And uh, we hear that 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 phrase so many times, and it's it's very uh, evocative in the Greek. And it's, it's 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 like violence is done to him. Uh, and then in in John eleven, the whole scene uh, regarding Lazarus, there several times it says that he's he he was sort of like upset and angry. Uh, the word perturbed is used in one translation, which I think is a little awkward. But uh, it's a hard uh, thing to translate uh, because it's it's sorrow, but also anger kind of mixed in there. When our Lord throws the money changers out of the temple, we can be confident that he wasn't doing that in a detached sort of just calm manner. He was angry, right? He he had that that emotion, that passion of anger. And then perhaps most significant is Oh, I forgot the one from Luke that I love. <laughs> when when he encounters the women from Jeru- uh, the women in Jerusalem who are weeping over him, right as he's carrying the cross, right. And he, so he comes across, upon these women, and they're they're feeling sorry for him and they're weeping for him. And most of us would indulge that, and we would say, "Yeah, thank you. You know, this is really heavy. Um, you know, we, we'd want that that attention." Our Lord doesn't do that. He sa- he instructs them says, do not weep for me. And he, 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 he instructs them on the proper place for their sorrow, for their weeping. And then I, I think probably the most, the most significant is what we hear in Matthew's gospel when our Lord enters into the Garden of Gethsemane, that he says, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. So that is just a little bit of a, a survey of our Lord's teachings uh, his words an example about about emotions, about the human passions. Now, either either emotions have their proper place, or our Lord was emotionally unhealthy, right? <laughs> um, e- either they are part of who we are, and they they need to be trained and and sort of harnessed, or um, they're bad for us. And we have to get rid of them entirely. This is the common and constant problem about the passions or the emotions or the feelings, whatever uh, we want to call them, they all kind of indicate the same thing. Traditionally, we call them the passions because uh, the root of that is um, indicates something that happens to the soul. It's not something that the soul does, but something that, that is experienced uh, or that is um, technically that is suffered by the soul. We can call them emotions, fine, or feelings, but as long as we, we understand what, what we're talking about uh, here as, as we go along. They've always been misunderstood. In the ancient world, you had the Epicureans and you had the Stoics. You had those who wanted to indulge you know, good feelings, and you had the Stoics who just said, well, any feeling whatsoever is suspect, right? You don't want to feel anything. And we have that today as well. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, you know, it's interesting to note two stereotypes about Catholics. Um, one is that Catholics are too emotional, right? Good Friday, Palm Sunday. You know, we have all these emotions in our liturgy, right? And then, the, of course, the opposite stereotype is that, is that we're too intellectual. You know, people tune in to hear dry, boring talks about their faith. And so, uh, you know, there's always this, this attempt to, to find the proper place Uh, for the passions. In order to locate them properly, what we want to do first is talk about uh, who we are, because the passions are a dimension of who we are. So let's talk about what I'll call the structure uh, of the human person, okay? So first there is the soul, and the soul has a certain, if you will, a structure to it. Of course, we know philosophically the soul is simple, but there are 
different powers or capacities of the soul. And we, we want to understand properly how they're related. Okay, so we have a rational soul. And that means we have an intellect and a will. And we have this in common with God. Uh, he has the divine intellect and will. We have a human intellect and will. Uh, and this is so that we can know what is true and choose what is good. A second aspect of who we are is, of course, the physical dimension. We're not just a rational soul. We are also physical beings. This is, of course, something that has been disputed throughout history, you know, from, from the Gnostics in the early church that Irenaeus had to fight against to the, you know, the transgender ideology today. There's always this kind of hostility to the body. Our body is part of who we are, not something we own, not, not something to get rid of or something that's holding us back. It is part of who we are. We are embodied souls. Now, it's really the union of these two dimensions of who we are, the soul and the body. It's really kind of the union of them from which the passions arise. There is something about the passions that is physical, right? You, you know, if you didn't get enough sleep last night, uh, you're probably going to be grumpy. Yeah. And uh, but then there's something spiritual about about the passions as well. I'll get to that later on. Uh, St. Thomas says, you know, the greatest cure for sadness is contemplation, right? Uh, I, you know, a lot of us would think that the greatest, you know, solution for sadness, the greatest cure is whiskey, right? Um, particularly bourbon, but scotch will do. But no, Thomas says it's contemplation. Uh, and so, so the sadness that it's kind of, there's a physical dimension to it, right? And, uh, but there's also something spiritual to it. So, so the passions are, are if you will, where, where the body and the soul meet. That, that's, I mean, it's philosophically, that's a terrible way of, of thinking about it, but colloquially it, it, it's fine because there is something physical about them and there's something spiritual about them uh, as, as well. Um, the angels do not have passions, at least not in the way that we do uh, because they don't have bodies. Uh, and our passions are because we are embodied souls. Now, within the soul, the intellect has pride of place. Th this is the way it, it you know, uh, it ought to be. That the intellect um, really guides things. We're always seeking what is true, right? We want to know what is true so we can conform ourselves to it. The will is, is in, a, in a sense, blind, and so the intellect sees, uh, identifies what is true and good. The will latches on to what is good. And the passions are meant to sort of participate in this. That's not what we experience, is it? Uh, we experience just the opposite. The passions sort of like race ahead and, and, and they force the will to choose things for them. And then the intellect is sort of dragged behind to justify everything, right? And so I had five glasses of whiskey, um, right? Because my passion said, that's a good thing. The will said, okay, let's do it. And the intellect was dragged behind to say, well, um, you know, it is an optional memorial in the Roman Catholic Church. So uh, that would be, you know, it's fitting to celebrate. Uh, our fallen human nature has, has upset the structure of the soul. Once... Uh, man rebelled against his creator, then his own interior life rebelled against him. And so instead of the intellect leading and the will sort of being the, 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 the force there and the passions participating, now we've got the opposite, that the passions lead the way, the will is, is you know, dragged into conspiring with them, and the intellect is forced to justify things. So, how do we kind of get back on the right track? Well, to realize that the passions, first of all, are part of who we are. And so they have to be properly uh, in integrated and that they are to be the proper response to reality, the proper response to reality. I'll get into the specific passions um, in a little bit, but I think we can all recognize that there are certain situations in which we ought to be sad, certain situations in which we ought to be angry or, um, or to take delight in something um, or to despair even, or to feel despair, not to choose it. 
Uh, St. Paul says, um, weep with those who weep. I love it's such such a beautiful line and such great advice. You, you, you know what we do a, a lot of times, especially for those who are mourning, we try to explain things to them and we end up saying stupid things um, to I mean, people who are crying over the death of a loved one. And we say, you know, this is all part of God's plan. OK, well, theologically, you know, God makes it part of his plan. But that's not what the person needs. Then to the person, the proper response to the sudden death of a loved one is to be sad about it, to weep with those who weep. Uh, and then the church tells us at other times, rejoice. And, and she takes the words of St. Paul, right, from, um, uh, uh, from Philippians. Rejoice. I say it again, rejoice. I love the fact that rejoice can be a command, you know, <laughs> because it, it's so counterintuitive. It, it, runs, it runs contrary to everything that we think about our emotions. We think our emotions are just, they just are what they are and we can't do anything about them, you know? But no, that command to rejoice, that indicates that, no, we do have actually certain control over our emotions. And we ought to, at, at certain times, choose to rejoice. St. Paul wrote those words from prison. So he knew a thing or two about commanding the emotions to respond to what, what is true. Now, the passions, the emotions, they come from the non-rational part of us, okay? But they need to be governed. And this is where St. Thomas gives us such great, um, such great instruction. Some of you may have seen the movie Inside Out. And okay, so somebody just said yes. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, so I was on a flight coming back from the West Coast and I had that little you know screen on the back of the seat in front of you and you can choose a movie on there. And I'm dressed like this and I'm looking through all the movies and I'm thinking, what movie will shock people the least if they see a priest watching it? And it was a cartoon. So I watched uh, Inside Out and it, it, it's, it's a really, it's, it's, it's fun, right? So it's about this um, adolescent girl who, and, and, it's, and it, it um, shows how her emotions are working with one another inside of her. And now I won't ruin it all, but the two principal emotions, and the, and the movie gets this right, the two principal emotions or passions are uh, joy and sadness. And it is, a, it is the healthy integration of those two that she has to learn. Now, the problem with the movie is that it presents the, the emotions or the passions as sort of jockeying for position or negotiating things among themselves. That's not how it works. Remember the rational soul, the intellect and the will that's meant to govern us, govern not just our body, but govern our passions as well. So that that is how our our passions are. I don't want to say so much controlled uh, as governed. The two the two extremes, of course, is to give into your passions, right, and to just you know, just indulge them. You know, if I go, if I want to be angry, I'm going to be angry. If I want to uh, be sad or happy, I'm not going to give any sort of consideration to what is the proper response to reality. The rational soul is the one who governs the passions. And this is why, you know, if we let them rule us, they are bad masters. But if we, by our rational soul, govern them, then they become good servants. Now, the proper way of doing this is very important because it doesn't mean just shutting down the emotions. That is extraordinarily unhealthy. Uh, and if... You know, there are times where you can't and you can't let your emotions rule you. You can't you can't give them their place. They have to you have to hold things in. You know, if a crisis situation. Right. Uh, soldiers in battle, they can't let their fear, which is legitimate. They can't let it govern them. They have to sort of restrain it. Right. But there comes a point where they're going to have to, like, you know, uh, acknowledge that fear and they acknowledge the difficulty and the sadness and the terror of 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 battle. And, and the, the, the horror of not only the possibility of being killed, but even worse, of killing someone else, right? So um, we can't suppress the emotions uh, entirely. 
that is incredibly unhealthy. And it's one of the things that Catholics have been accused of doing. And I'm sure some Catholics have done it and encouraged it, but that's not in the, that's not in Catholic theology. When we don't give them their proper place, they will come back and take an improper place. So if, if we do not, especially in our prayer and our quiet time, sort of acknowledge what we've been feeling, um, then those things will, they'll work themselves out. It's one or the other, either we're going to work with them or they're going to work us out. So uh, I, you may have heard the, the, the phrase, name it, claim it, tame it. Okay. Which is kind of a good way of thinking about governing the, the passions, name it. Okay. Wh what am I experiencing? A lot of people aren't reflective enough uh, to even get to that point. Name it, claim it, which is, yeah, I'm experiencing this. It's not someone else. Um, it's not just the circumstances. This is something that, that I am experiencing. And then tame it, meaning, is it the proper response? If it is the proper response, then wonderful. If it's not the proper response, then, then it needs kind of be it needs to be sent to its room. You know, it's kind of like a spoiled brat. Go to your room, right? That's another way of understanding the passions, by the way. They're kind of like unruly children. You know, if, if you let them, if you let them have their way, they'll, you know, that's it. Um, so sometimes you have to say, go to your room. Now, St. Thomas makes this point. Reason governs, uh, governs the passions, not by a despotic supremacy, which is that of a master over his slave, but by a politic and royal supremacy, whereby the free are governed who are not wholly subject to command. This is a very interesting point. He talks about the, a royal or a regal way of governing the passions. Now, especially we Americans, when we hear about royalty, we think absolute monarchy, right? And because um, that's what the modern world threw off was, was absolute monarchy. In Thomas's time, a monarch, he had to contend with, <laughs> with lords who had armies of their own. Right. And he couldn't just do whatever he wanted with them. He had to rule over them in a way that was very politic and very prudent because they had a certain autonomy of their own. This is why, uh, for example, when uh, the, the, the wars between uh, Europe, Western Europe and the Ottoman Turks, it was it was always the Ottoman Turks who just they could muster this incredible army and march into Europe because the ruler was a tyrant, right? Nobody else had autonomy. And the Habsburgs were always like pleading with other nations, will you come and help us? And pleading with their subjects, will you come and help us? Okay, so this is what's meant by a royal or a regal supremacy. Uh, as St. Saint, Saint Thomas says, whereby the free are governed. And so the rational soul doesn't rule over the passions as a dictator or as a master over its slave. who rules over... Uh, the passions with a great uh, reverence and respect for the legitimate place of the emotions. That is extraordinarily important. He doesn't seek, seek to just eliminate them. He won't let them have their free run of the place, but he has to rule them in a politic manner. Um, and St. Thomas says, it is not a matter of suppressing emotions, but elevating them elevating the emotions so that they participate in reason. Because if our passions are not elevated to that higher level of the soul, the rational soul, then they remain just on the level of the animals. Now, we want our passions to participate in our intellect, in our will, to participate in what we know to be true and the good that we choose and the evil that we reject. And so um, this is what St. Thomas means by, um, by governing them. Now, a word about the moral, the moral content of the passions. Uh, th there's a section in, in the catechism on this. You can uh, read that on, on your own when you have a chance. But in, in short, the passions are ontologically good, meaning they are good because they are part of who we are. Right. Insofar as they are part of who we are, they are good. They are morally good or evil, depending on the circumstance. If we indulge a passion that is disordered, like um, uh, a disordered anger or um, or lust or gluttony or uh, other things such as that, 
okay, now the passions have led us to sin and that's a problem. But the passions can also be a force for good, right? If if by by way of of anger, I I, I really push against what is evil, well, that's good. Uh, or if if my love for something uh, spurs me on to pursue the good more, then okay, then that that passion has helped me to advance in the life of virtue. And you can see that passions that are not governed quickly become vices, right? Uh, and at the same time, the purpose of the virtues, the purpose of the virtues is to put reason into the emotions, to put reason into the emotions. And so the so to 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 sort of to bring them up to participate in the rational soul. Now, let's go over some passions, some in, in, uh, specifically. OK. And again, here, just following a good St. Thomas in this regard. Now, the passions are a reaction against good or evil, a perceived good or a perceived evil. And classically, uh, the, the two groups are uh, divided into um, the concupiscible um, passions, which means that the passions um, of desire and then the irascible passions, the passions of, well, kind of anger, of, of, of energy and force. And you can see, by the way, how, you know, depending on your temperament, you might have the concupiscible uh, passions, right? Uh, the person who is, you know, loves and desires and all that. Or if you have a different temperament, you might have more of the irascible uh, passions, those, you know, courage and daring. And, uh, and so let's take the concupiscible first. Okay. And, um, and these are simply a reaction uh, in relation to the good. And so what are they? Love and hate, desire and aversion, pleasure and sorrow. Okay. So let's, and these are all in relation to the good. So uh, I'm sorry, to the good and the evil. So love and hate is, is the first category. And love, love is the most fundamental passion. Love really does make the world go round, right? Because we will, our, our souls are designed to love something. And now we're not talking about the virtue of love. The virtue of love is an act of the will. We're not talking about the virtue. We're talking about the passion or emotion. It's a sensible perception of the good. And so it, it, it is moved uh, by, by you, you see something good or beautiful and, you know, you, you love it. I mean, we all, know, we all know that feeling, right? It's not chosen, but it, it's something that kind of happens to us. And it's ordered towards union with what we perceive to be good, right? We, we, want, to, we want to be united with it. Now, if this is not governed properly, what happens? Well, union becomes possessing and consuming in, instead, of, instead of real union. Or if this is not governed properly, we end up loving the wrong thing, right? And that does us all kinds of harm. Uh, St. Thomas, this is just, this is such great stuff. Nothing is hurt by being adapted to that which is suitable to it because love always seeks to be united or adapted to something. Nothing is hurt by being adapted to that which is suitable to it, right? Rather, if possible, it is perfected and better. But if a thing be adapted to that which is not suitable to it, if I love something that's not worthy of me, then it is worse, it is hurt and made worse thereby. When we love what is not worthy of us, we, we hurt ourselves, right? There's that wonderful line in the letter of the Hebrews, um, the world was not worthy of them. You know, St. Paul, if it was St. Paul, uh, Saint, uh, or the letter of the Hebrews, whoever, or the author, whoever it was, is talking about the martyrs and those who have suffered for the faith. And he says, the world was not worthy of them. And they looked at it, they said, that's not worthy of my love. And if I love it, then I'm distorting myself because I'm adapting myself to something that is not worthy of me. Consequently, love of a suitable good perfects and betters the lover. So the, the more that we love things that are good, the better we become. But love of a good which is unsuitable to the lover 
wounds and worsens him. Wherefore, man is perfected and bettered chiefly by the love of God, but is wounded and worsened by sin, by the love of sin. According to Hosea, they became abominable as those things which they loved. So that is sort of the principal one, right? So now hate is coupled with love because hate is not in relation to the good. We don't want to hate the good ever, but hate is in relation to what we, a perceived evil. We ought to hate evil. We ought to. Uh, if we don't hate evil, there's something terribly wrong with us. Uh, and so uh, there, there ought to be that response. Uh, and then going back to, so love progresses to desire. Uh, love perceives desire moves. So love looks at something and perceives it and wants that union. Desire puts that into motion. And again, if this is not governed properly, what happens? We desire the wrong things. We move towards the wrong things. Uh, a retreat master uh, once uh, said to me, this is some of the best advice I've ever received. Uh, pray for the grace of good desires. And this is this great way of just sort of forming our passions, isn't it? Pray for the grace of good desires. And just, you know, going before the Lord, Lord, I don't, I don't desire the right things or I don't desire them in the right way. Give me the grace of good desires. I want to desire the true good and I want to desire it in the right way. And then love goes to desire and then desire uh, goes to, to joy or, or, or pleasure. And that's when you've attained the good. Okay, so let's just take a, a, a um, kind of an earth, earthy example. There's nothing wrong with loving a good bowl of pasta, right? Now, you're not, it's just an emotional love, right? This is not divine love. And, uh, and so you love it and you want union with that, right? Um, and so you desire it. And so you go seeking it and you go to, you, you know, you go to the good, good, good restaurant or, or maybe you know how to make it yourself. And then you sit down and you eat it, right? And there's the joy. There's the pleasure. You are resting in that good and, or it's resting in you now, right? Um, but that's the way things should progress in our relationship with God. And this is where the passions really are elevated, is, is, that, is that I want to have not just a willed love of God, I, I want to have that, 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 that passion and then that desire, and then resting in him is the goal. That is the joy. That's why uh, joy is, is, I mean, that's, that's the end of all of these things, right? Is, is that in, in joy is really that resting in him. Joy is not just physical pleasure. Joy is a delight of the soul. Now, if we think about these um, concupiscible passions in relation to the evil, we see hate first, right? Um, when, when you perceive evil, you ought to hate it. You don't want union with it. Uh, and then there is aversion. You avoid it. You avert you, or, or repulsion sometimes it's translated. Um, and you will, you will actively try to get away from it. And then what happens if you can't? Right. Um, uh, uh, some illness. Right. You you hate it. I don't want. And then, you know, you, you take lots of vitamins because you don't want to get it. And then you do get it. And what does that lead to? Well, it's sadness. It's sorrow, because now there's an there's some evil boom that has hit you. Nothing you can do about it. And there's sorrow. OK. This is why our Lord says my soul is sorrowful unto death because the evil of sin was upon him. And um, even though he willed it, even though he willed to be this victim, it was still painful to him. So those are the concupiscible uh, passions, the ones that, that are rooted in desire and, uh, and, and sort of more, um, more passive, if you, if you will. And then there, there are the irascible. Oh, wait, I have to get to this first. What are the remedies uh, for sorrow? Okay. And, and, and by the way, what if our sorrow is not rightly ordered? What does it look like? Well, we have two vices that are inordinate sorrow. Envy, when I am sorrowful about another person's uh, good, right? I, I see that, um, you know, Father Hezekiah says he's in beautiful California, right? And I'm inside the beltway, 
right? And I, and I resent that. And I'm sorrowful because of that good that he has. And uh, so that's envy. And then sloth, sloth, which is sorrow about the things of God. Now that's inordinate, right? So, um, but then St. Thomas talks about the remedies. And this is, this is wonderful. This is great stuff here. Earlier today, I mentioned to somebody who may very well be tuning in right now. Uh, there's a phrase I heard years ago when I was entering the seminary, the man-eating Thomist. The man-eating Thomist. And that, that was to describe the kind of, the kind of thinker who appreciated St. Thomas's theological insights to the exclusion of his human insights, okay? Um, and But St. Thomas is a great psychologist. And this section of the Summa is, is brilliant. So what are the remedies for sorrow? I love it. Tears. I mean, come on, St. Thomas is Italian. He knows how to, he knows how the emotions go, right? So tears, weep with those who weep, right? And and so there, 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 there should be, there should be, uh, um, weeping at certain times. There should be tears at certain times. Friends and sympathy, you know, just being being consoled by a friend. Um, we all know that. But here's the best one. And here's the highest one. The greatest of all pleasures consists in the contemplation of truth. Now, every pleasure assuages pain as stated. Hence, the contemplation of truth soothes pain or sorrow, and the more so, the more perfectly one is a lover of wisdom, what Boethius would call the consolation of philosophy, right? So what does contemplation do? It elevates our minds beyond what is, what is just immediate in here, and so that we can see, um, so we can contemplate what is eternal and unable uh, to be taken away. He goes on, in the powers of the soul, there is an overflow from the higher to the lower, and accordingly, the pleasure of contemplation, which is in the higher part, the intellect, overflows so as to mitigate even that pain which is in the senses. That's wonderful. Now, here's the problem. When you're sad, uh, when you're sorrowful, that's when you least feel like praying, <laughs> it's when you don't want to contemplate, and it's when you're when when you should the most. When you're sorrowful, that's when you just want to like plop down in front of the TV and just you know let your mind go to rot, or you just you just want to kind of lose yourself in something mindless and just sort of forget about things and veg out, as we say. But uh, what what brings joy, what what um, soothes our sorrow, Saint Thomas says, most of all, is contemplation of the truth. Okay. So those are the concupiscible passions. Now, the irascible passions. Now, these passions, uh, the same as before, they are gauged in their relationship to good and evil, but they're for the purpose of attaining them or of avoiding them. So they're think of them as more active and the concupiscible or more passive. So in the first one, is hope, not the virtue of hope, which is just willed, but sort of the, 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 the emotion, the passion of hope, what we, what we might call optimism, right? Uh, we all know people who are, you know, hopeful and sort of buoyant and, you know, make some of us sick, right? But there are such people, okay? And so what is hope? It is the emotion that enables us to overcome difficulties to attain a perceived good. So we see this good, we love it, we desire it, uh, and hope is the, is the passion that says, you know, let's, let's overcome difficulties in order to attain it. Ralph McInerney, uh, he defines it this way, a power of the rational soul, which provides us with the stamina and perseverance we need when our efforts to achieve desired goods are met with difficulties. So it's not just, it's not just being optimistic, but it's a certain it's a certain vigor and power, and now it has to be within reason, right? It has to be governed by the rational soul. So, what makes it within reason? Well, we have to hope for what is truly good, right? We can't hope for something evil. That would be a disordered passion. 
And we actually have to have the capacity to achieve it. It doesn't make any sense to hope for something that you've got no, there's no way in the world you're ever going to be able to do it. So, so that's first. Now, hope going into action is the passion of daring uh, or of courage, the, 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 the emotion of courage. Again, McInerney uh, calls it um, hope in action. And uh, St. Thomas calls it, um, he uses the word audacity, audacity right? Daringness. Um, McInerney says, this is a great line. He says, to leap is to be audacious. To look before you leap is to be rationally audacious. Uh, and that's what we want to be. We want to be rationally audacious, right? You don't want to, there's no, no virtue in being audacious in a foolish way. Um, now, corresponding to those two, okay? So those two are ordered towards what is good, to, to attaining it. Now, there are two other irascible passions that are ordered towards avoiding what is evil. One is despair, the emotion of despair, the passion. You know, a lot of times when, um, most every time, when someone con confesses despair, they don't mean the actual sin of despair, which is a knowingly and willing rejection of God's capacity to save the person. Most people don't mean that. When they, when they confess despair, what they mean is, I indulged this feeling of despair. I just kind of wallowed in this despair. Uh, and it was out of order, is inordinate. Now, despair, the proper passion of despair, is to grieve at a good impossible to achieve. So despair is when I look at something good and I know I can't, I, I can't attain it. And so I'm, I'm saddened by that. I've despaired of it. Or it's to look at an evil that's impossible to avoid. Say, ah, there's nothing I can do about that. So I despair. That's the, that's the passion of despair. There's nothing I can do about it. It sounds like a terrible thing, doesn't it? But it is a necessary thing. A man who does not know his limits is a very dangerous man. And usually looks really foolish, too. Okay? Exhibit A would be me on the golf course, right? I have despaired of attaining the good of being able to golf. I know I can't do it. It's not within my reach. And if I keep trying, I'm going to look ridiculous. So the ability to say, that's not within my reach. And here is something that I don't want that is, is coming at me. That's just a response to reality at times, okay? Uh, now, the pessimists among you, will, you love this passion. You love it. Okay. Uh, and sometimes a proper response to reality is to say, we can't achieve that good and we can't avoid that evil. And that's, that's just the realistic emotional response to a situation. Now, despair is disordered when we give up too soon, when we, when we misjudge the situation, when really actually we could attain that good or really we could avoid that evil. Um, and if despair is left to itself, it always goes to the darkest scenario, right? It, it's always the worst case situation. Another distortion of despair, as I mentioned, is, is not giving up when you should. One of the worst things that we teach our children, not we here present, but um, our, in our culture, is you can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want. That's just not true. <laughs> Uh, we are finite beings. And if we are not at peace with that, then we're going to look foolish, as increasingly we are. Despair is, a, is, the, is the emotional response to the recognition. I, I can't do everything I want. I can't be whatever I want to be. I'm limited. And sometimes it's a sadness to me. Uh, and then the passion of fear. Okay. Fear is uh, when we know that, that some suffering is going to come upon us. And we don't want that. We want to avoid, we want to flee, right? Whenever our Lord says, do not be afraid, he doesn't mean, oh, you shouldn't have that emotion. No, what he means is don't be governed by that emotion. That, that's what that, 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 that line always means. To be without fear is a very dangerous thing. If I see something threatening me and I'm not afraid of it, that's foolish. And that's why our Lord takes pains to say, don't, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but not 
touch the soul, I'll tell you who to fear, <laughs> right? And so we talk about fear of the Lord, uh, not as a virtue, but even higher as a gift of the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, and that's something that we're talking about the passion, but there, there's a relation there is that, is, that, is that fear can be a healthy thing when it prompts us to do the right things. So a fear of evil could, for example, that, that passion working properly, it makes us avoid the occasion of sin. And so there's a good example of fear uh, properly ordered, serving us well, keeping us from vice. Finally, anger. Now, what's interesting is um, that uh, there is no resting in evil. There's no joy in resting in evil, right? So when, you reach, when we reach the good, we rest in it and, and we take pleasure in it. But what if there is just evil and we can't escape it? That's when anger comes in and we push back against the evil that threatens us. That's what, that's what anger uh, does. Really, anger is, is the, the passion of self-preservation because we are a good, right? Each one of us is, is an irrepeatable good. And so when something threatens us, we should be angry uh, about it. However, St. Thomas says that anger is the passion that departs from the rule of reason the most quickly. Okay. So a, a lot of us like to talk about uh, righteous anger. And there is such a thing in our Lord, maybe in some of the saints, but it's a very rare thing because most of us don't have that that strength of soul to keep uh, to keep anger um, governed by reason, and I think we know uh, the uh, the examples of disordered anger when we're angry about silly things, like the guy who cut me off in traffic. Okay, right? Or we're angry in a disordered way, where you know, to and and we we go about it uh, in the wrong way. Uh, so th those would be the, the sort of the inordinate examples of when, when that passion uh, goes off the rails. So love, desire, joy, hate, repulsion, and sadness. Those are the concupiscible. And then hope and courage, despair, fear, and anger. Those are the irascible. Uh, and each of these has its place for good. But if it's not governed properly, it will lead to grave sorrow. How do we cultivate this proper ordering of our passions? Um, let me just touch on a couple of things here. One, meditate on our Lord's life, his example. He is, he possesses a perfect human nature. When we say that he became man, we don't mean that he was beset with all the foibles uh, that we have. We mean that he possessed human nature in its perfection. So if we want to know what the passions look like in a perfect human nature, we look to our Lord and, of course, to our lady. Read the Psalms. There's no greater expression of, the, of, of sorrow and joy, especially, than in the Psalms. Pope Benedict pointed this out in his catechesis on the Psalms. That the Psalms really are, are constantly hitting joy and sadness uh, and all of the other ones uh, in between. Ask for healing of wounds. Pray for healing. So because there, there are wounds that we all have, either inflicted by others or self-inflicted, uh, wounds that, that lead us to uh, disordered uh, emotions. And so we, we need to have those healed. Ask for the, the grace of an ordered soul. Ask for that grace. Lord, you know, <laughs> set my soul at peace, which means to bring it into proper order. And the last thing Immerse yourself in the liturgy. One of the greatest books ever written is Liturgy and Personality by Dietrich von Hildebrand. And in it, uh, his whole point is that to be formed by the liturgy means to be made into a, an authentic person. Uh, the liturgy we find throughout is teaching us how to rejoice, how to be sad, uh, where, where, you know, how to form the emotions. And not just um, not just in the readings, but in the prayers, uh, in, in all of the external elements to it. The, the, the church's liturgical year is really bringing us through the entire uh, gamut of, of the human passions. So, good servants, bad masters. 
Let's pray for the grace to govern our passions properly so that they can be for us good servants and will avoid the sad fate of having them be our bad masters. Thank you. God bless. Thank you so much, Father Scalia. What an enlightening evening we have had. And I'm sure it'll be even more enlightening once we get through all these questions that have already started coming in for you. Father Scalia, are you ready for some questions? I am ready. Yes, but I need to make one correction before we get to the questions. I quoted Ralph McInerney, and I feel so bad about this. It wasn't Ralph McInerney I was quoting. It was his brother, Dennis McInerney, who was an excellent philosopher, but of course, not as well known as Ralph McInerney. Uh, Dennis McInerney taught for years out at the uh, Fraternity St. Peter Seminary. And um, so... uh, Anyway, so I need to I, I feel I feel terrible, have, you know, because um, the poor guy, I think, always lived in the shadow of his older of his brother. You know? So so it was Dennis McInerney, not Ralph. Well, um, for this first one, Father Scalia, I hope you have your philosopher hat on. OK. OK. All right. Listen closely. This is from Bridget. If all passions must start with a perception of good or evil, that is love or hate, then do all passions ultimately come from love because even perception of evil is in contrast to the perception of good? Exactly. Yes, absolutely right. We're created for union with the good. We're, and, and so love is, is, is fundamental, that perception of what is good for me, right? We're created for happiness, for, for that delight. Uh, we're not created for hate. We're, we're not created just to avoid evil. We're, we're created for, for what is good. So, so um, that is why love is, is the most foundational uh, passion. And really, yeah, the one that, that leads all the others. Yeah, good point. Now, Sister Marie Celine um, writes in um, talking about how she works with, with toddlers, like three-year-olds. Um, and, and she says, I'm wondering if Father has any comments on nurturing virtues in a child who is pre-rational mm. slash full of emotion. You know, this is one of the mistakes we make um, as a culture. Um, We think that, um, okay, you just let little little children just be what they are. And then as they grow older, then you discipline them. Nope. (laughs) Because by the time they're older, you can't discipline them because they've gotten used to doing whatever they want to do. And so, yeah, from an early age, there should be the cultivation of of proper proper passions. And, you know, we we try to do this, right? We... um, uh, you know, parents will put a scowl on their face, you know, to to like a perceived anger in order to kind of prompt what fear in a child. So the child will stop doing something or not do what it's about to do or repent of what it had done or something like that. Um, and so and, and we try to foster the proper uh, what's sometimes called sentiments or, or emotions in um, in in children. So I, I think that um, whatever we can do to foster that even in toddlers. It's, I don't think it's ever too young uh, to do that. Um, and, uh, and I think we also see if that's not done, um, then there, there, there is from a very early age sort of a, 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 an, an emotional uh, distortion. So now how that's gonna about the brass tacks, uh, well, I don't have any children, so I mean. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, again, uh, this is what we try to do with the liturgy, isn't it? The Stabat Mater, when, 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 when we sing that, we, uh, we're asking Mary to make us sad the way she was sad. And, you know, parents bring their kids to the creche at, East, at Christmas and, and to, to love G, the baby Jesus and, and to, to have emotions about that, right? And, uh, and then they bring their children in on Good Friday. And I, and I, I love the, you know, when... When parents bring their children in their arms and then they have the child kiss the cross of our Lord. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. They're teaching that child both proper love and proper sorrow. OK, so the, the, all, all of these sacramentals are, are very important. Um, this is why um, devotional life, uh, the devotional life takes doctrine and it makes it more sort of uh, natural to us and, and helps to form the emotions. Bernadette, I saw you were raising your hand. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Father, for that wonderful talk. I was just wondering if you could reiterate that wonderful quote that you gave about 
how uh, the, the underlying principle, how reason governs um, emotions um, with reverence and respect of the legitimacy of the emotions. Um, yes. Can you re uh, reiterate that wonderful quote, please? In the Catechism, paragraph 1767, uh, that ends, um, it belongs to the perfection of the moral or human good that the passions be governed by reason. You know, not be suppressed by the will, but be governed by reason. Okay, and then the other one is from uh, the Summa, um, Prima Secundae, seven, question 17, or um, Article 17, question 7, no, reverse. Um, reason governs the irascible and concupiscible, not by despotic supremacy, which is that of a master over his slave, but by a politic and royal supremacy, whereby the free are governed, who are not wholly subject to command. So uh, that's, yeah, that's the quote you're looking for, Bernadette? Yes, Father. And so it sounds kind of like uh, the way that parents should govern their children, do you exactly. think? Exactly. Yeah. And any ruler should govern its uh, subjects, right? Is it is it, we are not wholly subject to command. We, you know, we have a certain autonomy. Father, Adrian asks, how do you govern passions that are brought about by trauma? Oh, that's a very good, uh, golly, that, that that's a very good question. You know, I, I think this is where clinical psychology um, and, and psychotherapy is, uh, when it's done well, when it's done with this proper understanding of the human person, what it's doing is it's like, it's like okay, how can we uh, apply the rational soul to that trauma in, in cognitive therapy and and so, so that we can um, find some healing there, or at least, um, well, find healing, but also find a way not to work out of the wounds anymore. And that's, you know, we're all wounded. Every single one of us is wounded. We're wounded by original sin. We're wounded by our own bad choices. We're wounded by others. We're just the walking wounded. It's what we are. Um, so, but, so that's not the question. The question is whether we're going to be aware of our wounds and, and try to respond, you know, uh, with rational soul, right? And sort of governing our passions, or if we're gonna uh, act out of the wounds and just, just let our wounds determine everything. So that is a, that is a very hard and long task. And, um, but it's, uh, you know, listen, we look to our Lord and his wounds, right? And we see his wounds and, um, and salvation comes from his wounds. And so for us, uh, our, our sanctification comes from when we take our wounds seriously and, and, and not, not allowing them to dominate us, but, but trying to sort of govern them properly. Um, Michelle asks if you could talk a little more about emotions being taught in the liturgy and, and could that also be said of the mysteries of the rosary? Yes. Um, well, uh, you know, I just touched on it with, uh, Christmas and Easter, right. And, uh, the music, um, please God, it's, if it's if it's good music, you know, um, uh, the music should move us in a certain way. Uh, that's why the church has a certain history of a certain kind of music, uh, is because uh, there there are things that 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 move us to sorrow, things that move us to joy, and uh, you, you know, and again, I think I think being attentive to the prayers. Uh, which which are just kind of dripping with with you know an appeal to the for, for the soul to be moved in a certain way, um, and then I think uh, in, in the external so as well so so the readings the prayers and then the, the external things the um, incense at mass what is, what is it it's supposed to evoke an awe really it's supposed to like a little bit of fear right a little bit of fear. And, uh, you know, several months ago, I had to, there's a kid sitting in the front pew and he had this like squirt gun. And I don't mean like a pistol. He had like, like one of these like big squirt guns. <laughs> and so I noticed it during, during the introductory rites and I, I saw him pick it up and then he put it down. I said, okay, maybe he's just put it down. And then he picks it up again. And I walked right across the, the sanctuary and, and I, <laughs> I scolded him and not realizing that my microphone was on. Um, and, uh, and I know here, Father Hezekiah is going to do his rants against microphones, but, um, in this case, it, it served us well. Fear, 
<laughs> and not just for the child, but everybody kind of what that conveyed was we mean business here. And so the incense, uh, the bearing of the of the sacred ministers and of the servers, that should convey to the soul, this is serious stuff. This is eternal. Um, now, you don't have to go take squirt guns away from, um, you know, little boys at every Sunday. But um, but those are, you know, I think that there's the outward things can convey a lot. Um, a couple of people have been asking, and I think I wrote this down correctly. Um, you, the book you recommended, it's Liturgy and Personality. Liturgy and Personality by Dietrich von Hildebrand. One of the best books written uh, on on the liturgy. Now, I think, Teresa, did I see that you were raising your hand? You mentioned anger as being the um, protection of yourself. Uh, yeah. Like the, the seeking of protecting yourself because the greatest good is yourself. I um, had heard it once termed that that's kind of what rage is. Is there a difference between anger and rage or? Yes. Good question. Um, we are not the greatest good. Um, God is the greatest good, right? But uh, God created each of us as an unrepeatable good, right? So this is why each of us, it, man is an end in himself, as, as Second Vatican Council says. And um, no, anger is, is pushing back against that evil that threatens the good, okay? Rage is, is the vice um, that I think we would call wrath. So anger is, you know, so anger is sometimes listed as one of the seven deadly sins, Right. Um, and it can be that if it's not properly ordered, in which case we, you know, traditionally call it wrath um, uh, to distinguish it from anger. Um, rage, I would say, is more like more like wrath because rage indicates uh, a certain unreasonableness, you know, being blind, blind with rage. Right. Um, so uh, and, and here I think we're just you're finding the right words to describe uh, the phenomenon that, that that we're addressing here. But but anger is just a passion. But once it's it's uh, disordered and gone off the rails, then it becomes wrath or rage. Sharon, are you raising your hand there? On the theological virtues, how they might how they might help with the governance of disordered passion. Right. Okay. Um, well, the so the the virtues that 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 help govern the passions directly. Are so I, I, did, I didn't get in, into this, but for the concupiscible, the, the sort of desirous passions, the virtue of temperance is necessary, right? Uh, the virtue of temperance, and it's it's a, one of the one of the cardinal virtues. The virtue of temperance it, it tempers our desires, and so it that's the virtue that helps to put reason into love, desire, pleasure, hatred, aversion, and pain. The virtues that govern um, the irascible, so the irascible passions are the more energetic ones. So uh, magnanimity, which is a desire for great things, right? Fortitude, which is a capacity to endure uh, in, in, in pursuit of the good. And meekness, counterintuitively, right? Because uh, we think of meekness, meekness as weakness, but meekness is, is a gentle strength, okay? Now, those are all moral virtues. The theological virtues just help elevate those and, 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 bring, and, and, and help, help those virtues to function at, at a higher level and for, for kind of a divine purpose. Okay, so I, I would say, and I don't, I, I mean, and here I'm, I'm this, is, this is Father Scalia, not Thomas Aquinas. I would say that the theological virtues do not assist directly so much as they do through their um, effect on the moral virtues. All right, Father, we will close out with this one. You know, you've been talking about a lot of high minded um, controls for emotions. Can you just talk about sleep and its role? No, because <laughs> the Red Sox are playing tonight. And I know that I'm not going to get any sleep. <laughs> um, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, the poem. Oh, I quoted it last time when we talked about hope, um, about sleep and sleep being um, being a very childlike thing, right? Trusting that I can go to sleep and I, I'm not so necessary to the world that I can actually go to sleep. 
right? Uh, and, the, and, and God has it in control. You know, actually, this is apparently one of the biggest problems in our culture today with people's physical and psychological health is we don't get enough sleep. And um, yeah, if you get sleep and you're well-rested, then you're probably gonna be able to, uh, your, your will is gonna be stronger and it's gonna help to, and um, intellect sharper so that you can govern your passions better. Uh, I, I think we kind of all know that, like if if we haven't got enough sleep, uh, you know, um, we're we're just we're just weaker in general. And so I think that's true physically, and uh, and psychologically. And uh, you know, uh, listen to a number number of podcasts and books that have treated this issue that uh, how how grave a problem it is in our society that that people aren't getting enough sleep. And one of the reasons is because of these things, these screens. Okay, so after this, turn it off. Unless you're watching the Red, so- Red Sox, turn it off and uh, go to sleep. I didn't know you were a Red Sox fan, Father. Not yeah. the Nationals. Well, you know, I mean, the Nationals. You know, they they weren't here. We had, this this area didn't have a team for the longest mm-hmm. time. So, right. fair enough. Carlton yeah. and F- Carlton Fisk and I have the same birthday. And when you're well, seven years old and you discover that, that that's it, right? That's your team. So, I feel you. I feel you, Father. Would you mind closing us with a prayer and perhaps your blessing? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Almighty God and Father, we ask that you grant us the grace to bring peace to our souls, to restore order uh, within us. Give us the grace of good desires, that we may desire what you desire, that we may desire the good that you set before us. We ask you to conform our hearts to the sacred heart of Christ so that we can love as he loves, desire as he desires, and seek always those things that he seeks. We pray this, again, invoking the intercession of Our Lady, St. Joseph. We pray, as always, in the name of Jesus the Lord. Amen. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down on you and remain with you forever. Amen. Father Paul Scalia, thank you so much. It was truly a joy to be with you tonight. Thank you. A lot of fun. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, Visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.